You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hi, I'm Ralph Powell, co founder and CEO of Real Vision. Thank you so much for listening to the Real Vision podcast. At Real Vision, we pride ourselves on providing the best in-depth expert analysis available to help you understand the complex world of finance, business, and the global economy. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll accept my invitation to try Real Vision Plus for 30 days for just $1. Visit realvisionpodcast.com today and join us as we navigate the financial world together. Cheers. A surge in foreign trademarks means your fruit is about to get a lot more tasty. Welcome to The Knock-On Effect. This is The Knock-On Effect, where we start with a thing you know and end up in a strange place. I'm Justine Underhill. I'm Alex Rosenberg. Hello. And today we are going to take you on a journey from trademarks to tasty produce. Um, and, you know, a lot of this centers around foreign trademarks. That's where we're starting today. Foreign for us. Foreign for us. Yes, I guess it all depends on your perspective. We Americans. Yes. Um, and foreign also, in this case, means China which is one of my favorite topics. Um, so basically what's been happening over the past few years is that uh, the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office has been flooded with applications um, for trademarks by Chinese applicants. Um, this is something that has grown more than 12-fold since 2013. So one in every nine trademark applications received by the U.S. is China-based. Which is kind of crazy mm. when you think about it. Um, it, it are, they must be the top country, top foreign country. Yes, they think. they outpace Germany, Netherlands, mm-hmm. um, a lot of other European, the UK combined. Wow. This came as a surprise to many U.S. officials, and they were trying to figure out what was going on. Why were we getting so many mm-hmm. trademarks from China? You know, a country that's not really known for intellectual property rights. Mm-hmm. Uh, what happened is that a lot of Chinese governments, um, specifically municipal governments, have been offering cash subsidies to citizens who register a trademark in a foreign country. So not just the U.S., any country, but specifically Shenzhen, which is kind of called the Silicon Valley of China. Okay. They're paying citizens as much as $800 for a U.S. registered trademark. Which is which is weird. I mean, what it, it's because why should they care that— their citizens are trademarking things in, in America. It's right. Uh, well, so at least from the reading I was doing, it seems like this is part of a, a national effort to ramp up intellectual property. It seems like China is changing its stance a little bit on intellectual property rights. It is interesting to note, though, because in China, trademarking something in the country, it's not first to use. It's first to trademark. So if I created, let's say, Legos— and then some 
copycat in China, trademarked it, Mm -hmm. my exact product in China, they would have the right to use it rather than me, even though I created it first. Actually, this happened in uh, not China, but India to uh, CFA Institute, the Chartered Financial Analysts Institute, of which I am a I think I'm a member. Proud member. Yeah. I'm definitely a member of the New York chapter. I can't remember. I guess I'm a national member too. Anyway, so the um, in India, another organization called the Institute of Chartered Financial Analysts of India um, basically applied for like the CFA trademark in India. And it's been this huge battle between the uh, CFA Institute and the Institute of Chartered Financial Analysts of India over who can who can use the letter CFA, which are very very valuable letters, and and you know a ton of Indians are taking these exams. Right. Well, it, it's kind of crazy because it's like if you have rights to something in one country, it doesn't mean you can have rights to something in another country. You, even if the other person is ripping you off. Right. Yeah. And so, well, and so that's where like uh, things are changing in China. I mentioned Legos earlier, and it was because it was top of mind. Um, actually, um, Lego specifically won a case against a toy copycat, um, and they were awarded uh, 15 million yuan, $2 million. Yeah, that's great. yeah, not a huge amount, but it's a big deal because it was one of the largest trademark-related awards that had ever been made by a Chinese court, and that was just a few months ago. Well, you know, what, you know what's really interesting about this, and I, I hope you'll indulge a, a small... Uh, Small digression. Okay, I'll partake. Great. Uh, so, you know, the part one of the principles of communism. <laughs> okay, small digression. <laughs> <laughs> Just stay with me. Stay with me. One of the principles of communism is that, you know, the the workers are being screwed, and this idea of intellectual property that you know, if, if I'm Henry Ford and I'm running a Ford plant, the idea that I created something and have the rights to a greater share of the profits than the workers is baloney. Mm. It, it, it's 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 a central tenet. I mean, now Marx was, you know, writing before uh, Apple came around, for instance. But mm-hmm. it, it, it's it's actually really so. Communist governments have always had this interesting relationship with trademark, mm-hmm. where they're almost saying trademarks don't matter because if you acknowledge trademarks matter, then some people deserve to make more money from the sale of the product than the workers do. So where we saw this happen, a, a really really bold illustration was in Cuba. So the Cuban government basically seized, uh, there's a fancier word, but they seized all the companies that were uh, that were in Cuba. However, they did not aggressively pursue foreign trademarks for the companies that they rightfully probably could have trademarked because they so 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 the most important instance is probably the most famous product that the, the most famous brand that ever came out of Cuba, which is can you guess uh, Cuban cigars, which so, is not a brand, but Bacardi is oh. is a very valuable brand. And so, it's, I, I read about this in a book uh, called Bacardi and the Long Fight for Cuba, which I recommend to everyone, especially those going to Cuba. Oh, yes. um, and no, but so they, the Bacardi family was really aggressive about. You know, a lot of them left for the U.S. They brought some of the original like stamps and stuff that had the Bacardi logo and the Bacardi name, and they got it trademarked in the U.S. and around the world. Hmm. And so, in by so doing, they were able to preserve the brand. And then, much later, the Cuban government launched some lame effort to try to take the trademark. But but it was too late because hmm. the car the Bacardi company was was already on it. Whereas some other brands that didn't work as quickly, the Cuban government was able to trademark them in foreign markets. It's funny. I feel so mixed about IP, intellectual property rights, and like I kind of see the point where it, like it stifles innovation. 
Well, and and other ways, I I understand that it it's important for um, people to be able to feel like they can patent their works and 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 be able to make money from them. Yeah, and 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 you know, getting back to to Legos, for instance. I mean, the same thing happened with Bacardi. The reason they just were just making better rum back in the day, Mm -hmm. and so people wanted to buy Bacardi rum. Like Legos make really good toys. I, I. and and they stake their reputation on every toy. So if, if a Lego doesn't fit into another Lego or whatever, right. you can send it back. And so that's where it's like if you have copycats, that kind of ruins your brand. Yeah, and and so I think it's good that Lego is able to say, no, you bought a Lego. You didn't you didn't buy a you know a Lego or a right. logo. Oh, a, a logo. I guess you did buy a logo. You did. And, and so this is actually in in terms of China. I mean, in their shifting attitudes, it's not just. Chinese getting trademarks abroad, they're also rapidly getting trademarks within China itself. So trademark applications surged by 55% in 2017 from 2016. And 2016 was already a record year. So it's like we've been seeing this kind of crazy growth going on. Mm -hmm. Um, China has 14.9 million active registrations overall. The U.S.? has only 2.2 million. So 14.9 million versus 2.2 million. China's being very aggressive about trademarking things and getting getting that done. Mm-hmm. Um, so sort of shifting shifting landscape that we're seeing. And, and again, just to underline like the point I was making, which is that if you have a rigorous trademark system, that's sort of like the final mark that you're no longer a communist country. Ah, so this could be the... Ending, I mean, ending throws for. Yeah, I mean, they haven't been China's truly communist in a while. I don't yeah. think it's going to mean the end of the the Chinese Communist Party, but it's just from a, you know, economic standpoint, mm-hmm. it's just interesting. Yeah. Milestone. Well, okay, so we have this aspect. I want to sort of put this aside. Okay. We're going to go down another topic, but we'll come back to this area. So. What I want to shift our gaze to, um, I'm going to have you guys listen to a couple ads. You just get the audio from these ads. Um, And this is for our listeners. See if you can guess what these ads are for. It's just short little clips. Camping or exploring, spending time off the grid, hanging with friends and family is always time well spent. Hope springs eternal. A new energy awakens. Okay, so these are ads for brand names like Sweet Tango, Jazz, Pink Lady. Um, Maybe that gives you guys some more clues. These are Apple ads, which is kind of crazy. Yeah, no, they don't, they don't, they don't look very rambunctious, very uh, energetic, very, uh, you know, it's, it's, I thought we, we thought it was a sports drink maybe or, or some kind of Dietary supplement, I don't know. Right, and so this is sort of the new world of Apple advertising. Apple being the Apple you eat, not Apple the computer tech giant. And so this is sort of... Um, I love. Do you think Apple is more famous than Apples by this point? It was horrible doing research on <laughs> Apples because I really was just looking for Apple the fruit. And every single thing that came up in terms of copyright and whatnot relates to Apple the tech company. Well, Apple the tech company is like the god of, of trademarks. Yeah, right. And so it was just impossible trying to do research on this topic yeah. when um, something else completely takes over the search engine. But they, they, they have a very... Okay, so last... last no, yeah. I'm not, not going to promise with the last discussion, but they have this really interesting thing for when they, they patent things where they'll send something really general. Um, so, so, for instance, when they patented the iPod, they would send like a very general thing, like a device that plays music, mm. and then wait for the patent office to say, no, you can't do something that broad. There's this problem, there's this problem, there's this problem. And they would use the patent office's own guidelines to write the broadest patent possible. 
Wow. And then they're very litigious with it. So so that that's why like they sued Samsung. They're like, that kind of looks like an iPhone. Right, you know? right, right. Anyway. But anyway, that's not the sort of Apple we're talking no, about today. No, 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 no. Um, so it's actually funny because uh, a few weeks ago we did uh, a story about grocery stores and slotting fees mm -hmm. and how much um, different producers of different products have to pay to just even get their item in the store. Um, and we we were talking about produce. And it's funny because across like all my research, maybe because of Apple, the tech giant um, that blocked it out, but I didn't come across any brand name produce. Um, but this is actually quickly becoming a thing. <laughs> but first, before we get into that, I want to give a little bit of history on the Apple itself. So when we think of apples, we There's think this of- this guy named Johnny and he would walk around the country. Not Johnny Appleseed. That's not who we're talking about okay. today. You know, we think about like a beautiful red apple. We think about Snow White, like that crisp red apple. Right. Um, what else? We think of uh, that delicious poison. The, well, okay, not that. But we think <laughs> of um, you know maybe on a school desk. You know, the beautiful apple. Sure. That apple is the red delicious apple. It's also unfortunately today the apple of gas stations and untouched cafeteria trays, mm -hmm. and you know, so it sort of lost a lot of its allure. But this is arguably the most popular apple in the U.S. And how did it become so popular, Justine? Oh, why, I'm so glad you asked. Well, in the 1940s, it really took on or took hold because it was fairly uniform in size and shape. It didn't bruise easily. It had a thicker skin. And it turned red before it was ripe. So it allowed them to pick it earlier, apparently. That's what that means. And it also just stored for longer, and it still looked really good. But the key thing, I didn't mention any of those things, is taste. taste. Yeah. Common complaints. Mushy, mealy, yeah. no flavor. But it wasn't always that way, and I would love to try an apple from the 1940s, because I bet you it doesn't taste like one of the apples we had today. So what happened was in the 60s and 70s, an apple was an apple. Um, you know, if my apples tasted worse than your apples, it didn't really matter because all these apples would get mixed together. All these red delicious would get mixed together and lumped into the same category. So there was no incentive for me to try to make sure that the taste or anything was good. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to make sure it got sold. And mm -hmm. getting sold meant that it looked good. Um, so in terms of growers, they, they cut costs, they cut corners. Mm -hmm. But they still maintained looks. Because I mean, when you're choosing an apple in the grocery store, what are you looking at? You're like, oh, it's it's red, it's firm, it's not bruised. You're just, you can only judge it not on things related to taste. But then, you know, consumers did catch on. I mean, if they're flavorless apples, um, that, can't, that can't last for very long. And that led to the great red delicious bailout of 2000. Um, so basically in 2000, Congress approved and President Clinton signed the biggest bailout in the history of the Apple industry. And I have a quote here. This is from the New York Times, a New York Times article of the day. Quote, nobody should feel sorry for us. We did this to ourselves, said Doyle Fleming, an, a lifelong Apple farmer. For almost 50 years, we've been cramming down the consumer's throat a red apple with ever thicker skin, sometimes mushy, sometimes very good if done right, but a product that was bred for color and size and not for taste. Wow. So basically, you had this entire industry of really, really terrible apples. And it's funny because the apple industry was one that prided itself on being independent. It wasn't like 
uh, corn farmers or mm-hmm. other things where they relied on government subsidies. Mm-hmm. And so this was actually a pretty big scar for the Apple industry <laughs> in some ways, a bruise if you will. But anyway, it led to a lot of controversy because people were saying, why are we bailing out these red delicious farmers right. when this is apples that we don't even want anymore? Like yeah. we're sort of supporting something that nobody wants. Yeah. Um, and so that became really controversial. But there is hope. So at the same time that this apple crisis was brewing, mm-hmm. something very key happened. Congress broadened legislation allowing universities to patent and commercialize inventions. Um, That was a tricky thing that happened because universities that got federal funding couldn't necessarily patent inventions if it was like if they got money from the government. But they broadened that legislation. And so that ended up giving birth to the honey crisp. Which is a really good apple. It's funny. I never had a honey crisp before. um, I'm all about them. Yesterday. But wow, is that a better apple? So we actually have the patent here for uh, the Honeycrisp. Uh, it was created by researchers at the University of Minnesota. What year does it have on it? It's uh, March 20th, 1990 was yeah. the patent. Um, and so that was pretty much uh, the first name brand designer apple. And I will mention Honeycrisp cells are twice the size of other apples, which... So the, the cell, you mean this, the... Each cell, for some reason, is twice the size. That accounts for its, um, apparently accounts for its unique, pleasing texture. But I don't know. That sounds like a science fact that is like, I don't know what it means. <laughs> it's but, from Excelsior, Minnesota is where the... Uh, yeah. Well, it's the University of Minnesota uh, researchers there. Onward and upward. Yeah. That's what Excelsior means. Oh, yeah. okay. No, or is it ever upward? <laughs> I don't know. doesn't really matter. Okay. But anyway, it commands double the price of a regular Ah, Excelsior indeed. Yes. So um, I have a quote here from David Bedford. He's the man that's responsible for creating the Honeycrisp. Nice job, David. Yeah, he told Esquire magazine, quote, I have absolutely never seen this price phenomenon with another apple. Quote, there are varieties that have garnered a 10% premium to standard pricing, and usually they have a promotional campaign behind them. This was just sort of a success on its own. Um, And it's pretty amazing because this was double the price. When I went to buy Honeycrisps in the grocery store in New York, they were $5 a pound, which no other Apple has touched $5 a pound. And basically what happens is the university earns $1.30 on every tree sold. Um, the patents brought in about $6 million or so. So, good. you know, for $1.30 on every tree, that's, yeah, pretty good. It's also a way to control the supply and the quality of the apple um, because growers need authorization from the university to plant the tree. Mm. And so that sort of helped it avoid, so far, the fate of the Red Delicious. Um, but, but so I just want to question something you're saying about the Red Delicious. Is it really that... The red delicious used to be really good, and then it, it didn't because my understanding was that as more and more fruit was trucked across the country, and you know, apple a day, you know, given any conditions, not just in the fall when you might, when it might be ripening, and so so it was being shipped further and it's being stored longer. Mm-hmm. Isn't it that the red delicious beat out other kinds of apples which which didn't have such thick skin? Yes. And so that's actually been a huge factor. That, I, I don't know if you had a Red Delicious from the 50s that it would necessarily be much better is what I'm trying oh, to drive I've, at. Oh, I read reports that 
that taste actually did decline. But another reason that taste has declined is that we are storing the apples for longer. So there's actually something called birthday apples, which means they're 12 months old. A lot of apples you're likely to see in the store are actually, you know, if we're buying apples year-round, um, you know, yeah. it's likely that they're not, that. they're not fresh apples. Don't do that, but guys. You know, I do... I mean, at least from everything that I've read and all the research I've done, it does seem like apples from the 1940s were actually tastier than they were today. Um, But that's what you get for having an apple in February. Yeah. So maybe they weren't eating them at odd times of the year. But what's happening with the Honeycrisp specifically is that the patent actually expired in 2008. So there's only so long that you can hold a patent for. Mm. And so that now allows anyone to plant the Honeycrisp apple. And so now we're actually starting to hear some anecdotes about subpar Honeycrisps. And actually, Wired Magazine, there's an article about the eventual decline is inevitable for the Honeycrisp. Um, so Wired seeing, thinks everything's decline 20, is inevitable. Yeah. It just mirrors like, right. Wired is like Black Mirror, the, uh, the oh, blog. Right. Well, I mean, so... <laughs> sorry, sorry, Wired. <laughs> I... I do think that there is reason to believe this. I mean, especially mm. because it's sort of like now a free-for-all for the Honeycrisp. Right. And so what we are seeing is the race to create the next Honeycrisp nice. and also to make a little bit more than a buck per tree planted. So there's all sorts of new ways about doing that. And so we now have things like the Zester, the Sweet Tango, Envy, Rave, Kissabelle, Pink Lady, Jazz. Those are all apple names, by the way. And we have the rise of club apples. So basically, club apples are when an apple is not just patented, but also the name is trademarked. And then they're controlled in such a way that only club farmers or farmers that are part of the club uh, could sell them. And the trademark is key here because the trademark never expires. So the apple patented for... um, Never? A few decades. Yeah, the trademark doesn't expire. So they patented the Honeycrisp. They didn't trademark the name. They could have trademarked the name. And then it would have been something that they could have controlled even more. And so, for example, um, the sweet tango, uh, for every bushel of sweet tango apples that growers of that club sell, they have to pay a royalty to the University of Minnesota. So there's University of Minnesota being oh, able so, to so there, so, break in. So what I'm hearing is that if you want to get into apple creation, mm-hmm. You got to go to University of Minnesota. I mean, come they're, on. They've come been on. doing pretty well. Although, I will say University of Washington is catching up quite quickly. Oh. Yeah. So there's a little bit of a, a race here. So it seems like the next hot apple is looking like it's going to be the Do cosmic. have a hot apple? No. This is hot metaphorically. Right. I know. I just, you know, we yeah. wonder. Okay. Well, the next big apple. Oh, is going to be the Cosmic Crisp. Oh, right here. In the I know. I got it. Crisp. I got it. So that's actually, um, we, we're seeing headlines. Uh, the next celebrity apple the is... Cosmic Crisp. Washington State's Cosmic Crisp. All right. Yeah. Um, they even have a really fancy website. If you want to see a really cool website, go to the Cosmic Crisp website. My homepage, personally. Yeah. Well, so these apples are not going to be available until fall of 2019. So we still have a year um, before long, we actually it's a, it's get a long, them. It's uh, a long lead on that marketing camp. I mean, that, that's that's that, that's more in advance than they market the next Star Wars movie. They've been this apple has been talked about for at least half a decade already. I mean, it takes. I mean, this is great press for them. But I mean, how many how many brands have we talked about on 
on the knock-on effect. That's just, yeah, not uh, many. Yeah, good, yeah, ju- so good job, is, Cosmic Crisp. It, yeah, and it's a big deal because you know this is coming to market. People are saying that people who have tried it say that this rivals the Honey Crisp. Mm. Right now, paying to grow apples as part of a club is actually very expensive. So this is could potentially be. I mean. I put lucrative in quotes, but it could be a lucrative business. Um, Paying to grow apples like this costs probably about $2,000 per acre in some cases. But that also allows or contributes to marketing campaigns. And so something like the Cosmic Crisp is going to have a $10 million marketing campaign. Wow. Which for an apple? But we'll see. You heard it here first. Cosmic Crisp. Watch out for it. Well, you know what's interesting is I I do buy my apples – I, I I do use brand names, but it's usually the brand name of the of the farm. So like, mm. if I'm if I'm I don't eat a lot of apples these days. But if I were to to really bring home some some apples, it'd be like, you know, at a farm stand that I, I really trusted that this would be a uh, good apple based on the the farm. Interesting. There was um, a Nielsen survey that said that more and more people are actually buying branded fruits or seeking out branded produce specifically. Mm-hmm. So it's good. I mean, it's, it's it, that that's a good that's a good thing. And people, I guess. I mean, I don't. Yeah, it is. I mean, in terms of know, like because because it's it's it, you it's not the commodity effect, so it actually makes a difference to growers. You know, especially if you're as part of this club and there's really some quality control, it makes a difference to growers that if their fruit is good or not. I mean, it's... Right. And so, yeah, in this way or this system, there is more quality control, hopefully better tasting apples or produce. So according to Nielsen, branded produce accounts for 38.5% of produce sales. That's that's actually quite a bit, especially knowing that it was like 30 percent in 2012 so i guess i guess i've chiquita bananas like i if you i've i almost refuse to eat any uh raspberry or blackberry that's not driscoll unless it's from a farm stand because like you ever have like one of the like off-brand raspberries they're terrible Oh, interesting. No, I, I... Driscoll's are always good. I guess I'm one of the shoppers job, that doesn't really pay attention to... Really? Bra- I, well, in terms of fruit. But it, so, but now I, I have started to, now that I've done all this research, mm. um, actually 55% of consumers, this is according to the Nielsen study, 55% of consumers shop without a brand in mind. And so because of that, Nielsen actually suggests that companies can really take advantage of this because this is one of the few remaining mm-hmm. areas that hasn't become completely brand. Um, So we're definitely seeing a shifting landscape. And actually, I thought this was a really interesting quote. So Tom Byrne, he's the president of the Minnesota-based Next Big Thing Cooperative. So they control the Sweet Tango apple. They told NPR that uh, traditional open varieties of apples, um, because they lack marketing muscle, will have trouble competing and they actually may disappear. So he said, quote, it's going to be a world of managed brands just like the soup aisle or the potato chip aisle or any other aisle. I don't buy it, Tom. Tim. Right. You know, because like Honeycrisp is so good. We we yeah. tried so we we tried in the in the if you want to watch the video, uh, realvision.com slash knock on effect. We tried we, what did we try? We tried we the tried, jazz. We tried four apples. We tried red delicious, honey crisp, jazz, and pink lady. I gotta say honeycrisp is like far and away the best one. It was not even yeah. particularly close. I think we're definitely going to end up seeing a much more segmented apple market. Mm-hmm. Just because as you were saying, there's gonna be much more control for quality and People don't want to be eating mushy, mealy, no-flavor apples. And so that's sort of why we saw that apple bailout. We do see shifting preferences, and people aren't paying as much attention to 
is this apple bruised? It's more, what about the flavor? Mm-hmm. And, you know, right. some other things like that. Um, okay, so let's combine some of the things that we've talked about and yeah, what, make, what, what's make trying our, to have to do with all Make this? our little cake. Okay, so let's take what we put aside before, which was uh, China is trademarking things fast. A key part of this is that China also happens to be the largest producer of apples by a factor of 10. Which is fascinating. I had no I idea. Know. And because you don't think of China as having a huge amount of apple dishes. But um, they produced 44 million tons of apples, whereas the U.S. is a distant second producing 4 million tons. 44 million tons versus 4 million tons. So... My theory is that if you take the fastest growing trademarking nation and you combine that with one of these fastest growing trademark products, I wouldn't be surprised if we actually start seeing a lot more varieties of new apples coming down the pike uh, for a much more segmented, I hope, tastier market. And although it'll like the average apple will probably become more expensive for folks, right? That's what I imagine. A lot of the quality of China's apples are not as good as U.S. apples. Really? Yeah. A lot yeah, of the, honey I, crisp I, haven't made it over. Well, so the the issue is that they pack a lot of these trees so tightly, they don't get like a lot of sunlight. I mean, it's just like these orchards are huge in China, like just mind-boggling huge, and you can't even um, fit like a tractor between them. There's actually um, they were saying that they should just take out every other tree so that they could get more sunlight and the, the apples would be a lot healthier and the apple trees would be a lot healthier. But that's not happening because there, there's a much bigger focus on short term rather than long term. So I, did I kind of get you from point A to point Z? Um, a little bit? Sure, sure. I I, I think it's it, – listen, it's it's an interesting trend. It, it's interesting – I mean, the, the the overall thing we're seeing is that trademarking is becoming a bigger deal, both uh, in China for all sorts of things, mm-hmm. and and for products that aren't trademarked like apples. So yeah. it's interesting. So many these commodity products move to more specialized products. And and the other thing I really want to highlight for folks, is, which you discussed, is that almost there was a backlash towards. So at one point, an apple was an apple, and then it moved to a point where people were like favoring one kind of apple over other, but but not doing it in a, in a clever way. Mm. And now it's almost a backlash. I mean, you know, really on the part of consumers, because at the end of the day, it's consumers' job if they want to eat good apples, like they got to buy good apples, mm-hmm. and then farmers will make whatever the consumers want. Right. So it, it's also just part of a societal shift that we've discussed in, in almost every single episode toward thinking more about about what we're eating and, and being more concerned about flavor. Yeah. And actually, that's sort of now it's becoming, I, I think the good point that you make is it's being driven by the consumer. Um, and so it's almost like what's crazy, why did it take decades for people to wake up and say, hey, wait, what we're eating is really terrible. Yeah. But that's sort of the trend that we're seeing. And- well, and we've seen apples. It, it, it's led to a comeback in apples because I know for me, growing up, apples were probably my least favorite fruit or like hmm. they, they were they were down there with like honeydew you know it's like why why yeah and now uh i don't eat apples so much on this uh diet thing i'm on but um when i've had I, you know when i've had apples recently from like a really good farm stand they're like they knock me out and yeah. so so I, I now i almost prefer an apple to an orange or, or a pear so huh. 
So it it brings consumers to the overall sector as well. Yeah. These specific brand names. And actually, also just something key to point out in China, a lot of consumers prefer brand names um, specifically because mm-hmm. it is sort of a status symbol. And so I would imagine that brand name fruit is uh, actually brand name produce is becoming more of a thing. Cool. All right. Well, I think that's a great note to leave it on this week. So. You can catch us every Thursday at realvision.com slash knock on effect. Or just uh, keep listening to the podcast. If you prefer the podcast, the video, yeah, just go for it. Um, but I will say at realvision.com slash knock on effect, mm-hmm. you can sign up for your 14-day free trial of Real Vision. Yes. And uh, speaking of China, we've had a lot of really interesting pieces and interviews on China in the past few weeks, uh, uh, conducted by Kyle Bass, an interview with uh, Miles Kwok, a very controversial mm-hmm. uh, interview with uh, Steve Bannon. Yeah. Uh, and in the weeks ahead, we're, we're if, if you've had enough China, sorry, Justine, uh, we're, we're shifting. There's going to be a lot of very interesting crypto content. So, so a lot of big interviews um, with movers and shakers in the crypto space. Cool. So you want to check that out? Yep. All right. See you guys next week. podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads go to lips and now that's l-i-b-s-y-n ads.com